Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another exciting episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens and I am glad that you have tuned in to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse on this Tuesday evening. I'm sitting behind the studio of the or in the studio of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse behind the broadcast desk. Sitting across the desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor, and it's good to have you back uh, from good vacation. Good evening, Nathan. It's good to be back and good evening good evening audience. Um, hope that we can help you this evening as well. Before we get to the topic this evening, Pastor, I have two questions that came in while you were on vacation, uh, and these are specifically to you. Pastor, my question is, how did you become a pastor? And secondly, can a church have more than one pastor? That is a pastor and an associate pastor at the same time. Okay, let me answer the second question, and then on some occasion it's kind of long to answer the first question. Uh, so the second question I want to address, which has to do with the matter of can a church have more than one pastor? You know, it's very significant that when you read the uh, Pauline epistles, every time he writes to a church, he always addresses pastors in the plural. He doesn't talk about bishop. He talks about bishops. He doesn't talk about elder. He always talks about elders. And it is believed that, generally speaking, that a church uh, in the New Testament time would have more than one person serving in the pastoral role. Um, I could see the benefits of this. Of course, within the context of our modern times, hardly uh, any church these days, very few churches, can afford to have more than one pastor. It's just a practical reality of life. uh, uh, Unless you're going to have a pastor full-time, if you're going to have a part-time pastor, that may be possible. But generally speaking, uh, the New Testament would seem to indicate that there was a plurality of elders or plurality of pastors, and so there wasn't any one particular pastor that belonged to a particular church or ministered in a particular church. I think that is um, that can be supported biblically. The other factor is that sometimes it's good to uh, to be able to farm out the pastoral responsibility. Some churches have got pastors who are responsible for evangelism. Uh, some have got ch- churches who are uh, pastors responsible for administration. That depends on how big the congregation is and what type of ministries they've got. Uh, some people have pastors who take care of the matter of um, uh, ministering and pastoral, pastoring to the, the members of the church and visiting the sick, etc., etc. There are some churches that got 3,000, 5,000 10,000 members, you can see in a congregation like that that it would be almost impossible for one person to fulfill that function. So I think that uh, it all depends on the size of the church. It all depends on the history of the church as well. Um, And it depends on the needs of the congregation that could help a church to decide whether or not they have more than one uh, pastor. In our church, we currently have 
two pastors. One is the pastor of the church, generally speaking, and then the second person performs the role of the youth pastor. Um, he's not really the assistant pastor, which is a different title altogether, but he serves and helps along with the different aspects of the pastoral ministry. So I hope that answers your question. And uh, if it hasn't, uh, maybe we can talk on the phone at greater length uh, if you call our number at the, when it's given to you at the end of the program. <clears throat> a follow-up to that was just the other day a lady told me <clears throat> that her church has a bishop and that the bishop has a much higher position than a pastor. What are your thoughts? Well, again, if you take the Bible as a standard by which to make those kind of judgments, you will notice, notice in the Scripture, especially if you go to the book of Acts chapter 20, that the word bishop, the word pastor, and the word elder are all synony synonymous terms. They just emphasize different aspects and different functions. The pastor role, uh, pastor refers to his caring work as a shepherd. His bishop role has to do with his administration and rulership and, and headship of the church. And uh, the elder aspect has to do with his maturity. So these are synonymous terms. And um, so there's no, there's no basis for elevating a bishop above a pastor or an elder. Uh, this is just something that took place during the Middle Ages uh, to create different hierarchies. So you had the, you had the, the pope, you, you got the bishop and the archbishop, and then you had the, 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 the priests and the, and the deacons, etc., etc. It's just a man-made system, but if you take Scripture at face value, and especially study the book of Acts chapter 20, you'll see very clearly that these words are used interchangeably, and therefore there's no basis for elevating the office of bishop above a pastor. They are synonymous. Thank you to the individual who sent that those questions in. Our topic tonight, it doesn't matter whether you are rich or poor, young or old, educated or uneducated, trouble will appear in your life. Wait, did I just hear you say that you don't have problems or trouble in your life? Don't worry. Just wait and it will find you. So stay tuned because whether you have problems in your life right now or not, pastor's advice from the Bible will apply to your life. Tonight we're going to be specifically discussing how the Christian should deal with trouble or problems in his life. Pastor, do you have any introductory remarks that you'd like to make as we get started? Well, I, I want to just uh, say a few words as we begin the, uh, the program. <clears throat> Um, when it comes to problems, I think that we're all familiar that this is a common aspect that all of us will face at some point in time. Um, it's part of man's fallen condition, and the moment sin entered the world, I opened a Pandora's box where we were now faced with a variety of problems uh, as, as, as people. Uh, the other factor is that not even Christians have escaped the this whole matter of problems. Uh, if any believer uh, would claim that he doesn't have problems, uh, he either, either isn't facing reality or he's just prevaricating or just simply telling lies because problems are common uh, in our lives. As a matter of fact, our Lord himself made it clear. Uh, Jesus said that in the world we'll have tribulation or we'll have troubles. Uh, he also said that uh, offenses need come and are bound to come in Luke chapter 18. Uh, in the book of Job, uh, it reminds us as well that men are born to trouble as a spark fly upward. Uh, and another thing that I think is very significant is a word that is used repeatedly again and again in the Bible in respect to believers, 
where we are constantly told to admonish, admonish, admonish. That's a fascinating word in itself that gives you the idea that uh, the believer's life has some kind of problems. The word admonish, for example, is the Greek word nuthesis. And that particular word has four ideas inherent within that word. One is that there's something wrong that needs to be corrected. Secondly, there is some behavioral change that relates to that matter that is wrong. And then the third aspect of that word is that there's some verbal confrontation is necessary in order to deal with the problem. And then finally, uh, in that word, the inherent concept is there that it, the motivation for confronting and resolving this problem verbally is the motive has to be a motive of love. So the word that is used again and again in respect to the believers admonishing one another, admonishing one another, uh, inherent in that word are those four concepts. And clearly uh, it indicates that there's something wrong that needs to be corrected and some behavioral change that needs to be rectified. And this must be done through verbal confrontation out of a motive of love. So if you take the biblical word itself, it would indicate clearly that believers uh, will have problems just as as much as... um, people who are not Christians uh, will have problems. And of course, our problems come in many forms. Sometimes it's a severe disappointment we may encounter. Uh, normally, we would suffer some, some kind of loss. Uh, maybe it's a failure to achieve something, a physical illness. Uh, perhaps it's a misunderstanding. Or there'll be some malicious attack that is done by uh, a nemesis. Or even there may be some need or lack of some kind that creates frustration in your life. Maybe a broken relationship. Uh, but there are quite a variety of, of problems. But I think we all are familiar with the fact that we're going to face problems at some point in time. <clears throat> you made the statement that as believers we're going to face problems just like the unsaved world. But there are so many so-called preachers out there that are saying that if you give to God's work, if you are in a good, proper relationship with God, there won't be trouble, you'll be blessed, you'll have prosperity. How do you reply to that? I think this is part of the modern deception. Um, I think that this is the apostate gospel that is being preached. Uh, It is called the prosperity gospel. Uh, It has no biblical base whatsoever. And I think that those people who advocate that kind of a sunshine religion uh, is misleading people, and ultimately it leads to frustration. And I think eventually it leads to people falling away from the Christian faith because they come into the Christian faith expecting something that is quite contrary to the Bible, and inevitably it will prove to be false, and that would lead people to abandon in the faith. But um, I think it's one of the major deceptions of our time, and I think it has to do with the attraction of getting people into churches. I think it's, it's, it's crunching numbers, and I think it's feeding people's ears, which the Bible says will have itching ears, not wanting to know the truth. And people are, are prone uh, to go to churches that uh, give what is called a positive message uh, that is so contrary to the Scripture. I am totally amazed how anybody can read the Bible and still believe that that is a gospel message that is preached today. Uh, Even if I weren't a Christian, I could see right through it as a fake message. So you're saying the Bible is not just a positive message? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, if you check the Bible uh, and you read the Pauline epistles, you'll find it always deal with the negative first and then deal with the positive. And it's so important to do that because uh, God has to state it two ways. We are so depraved that just to state it positively, we can misinterpret it. And that is why you find 
mind that there are two sides to every issue. He always tells you, don't do this, and then he tells you what to do. That's the biblical method. And when we're going to teach people principles, we must always emphasize the negative as well as the... To, to use an illustration, most of these uh, gospel preachers you're talking about, uh, I would ask anybody to go back to the files of their memories and the sermons they've heard from these uh, uh, these preachers. Uh, think of when last you ever heard these people mention sin or mention uh, depravity or mention even hell uh, or mention reference to the, the flesh and the fallen nature. Uh, the message is totally positivity type of presentation and uh, it is more positive thinking than it is biblical truth. So you're saying that those that are, I'll ask, I'll get to that question in just a minute, Pastor, we have a caller on the air from Antigua. <coughs> Thank you for calling and go ahead with your question, please. Uh, good evening, Pastor. Good evening, sir. Welcome back. Thank you. Uh, Pastor, I will ask you two questions. Sure. If you could answer me, help me out, please. I really want to know about it. Uh, how do you really go along fasting if you want to fast like one day, two days, three days? How would you go? How you would go along it? Like if you have to eat in between, if you have to drink water in between, or just give me a kind of definite answer. Well, for one thing, you have to start preparing yourself for fasting. You don't just get it one day and say you're going to fast. Um, if you're accustomed to a certain type of diet or a certain type of uh, food that you're eating, you try to have, to have to have to kind of phase that out a little bit to get your body to adjust. So I would say to you that if you intend to fast, um, before you get into the actual process of fasting, I would recommend that you reduce your intake, that you take on a normal basis so that the, the body, especially if you've never fasted before, it can be very traumatic on the body. So you want to try to phase it in. That's the first thing I would suggest to you. Uh, the other thing is that normally when you're fasting, the first two or three days are the most difficult. And uh, you should try to at least take water in uh, during those few days. Even if you don't take anything of substance, you should try to take some kind of liquid in. Um, but after you pass like your third or fourth day, your, your, your hunger thirst normally would almost disappear. Uh, so your hardest days are the first uh, three or four days. After that, basically, it's much easier on your system. Your body seems to have adjusted to it. So I would say those two things. Try to um, prepare your body for it by reducing your intake. And then during the first few days, try to use only water. And it's going to be a struggle, especially if the body has been accustomed to being fed three times a day. But once you can get past the third day, generally speaking, you'll go for four, five days, six days, and you'll find that you're, you're, there's a reduction in your desire for food. And sometimes you can even go longer. But the hurdle is going to be getting past the three or four days. And can you fast while you're working? I mean, if you have a job and you fast in between, or you fall to fast and play? Well, I, I, listen, I would recommend if it's going to cause you to underperform at work, it might ruin your testimony. Uh, you can go to the boss and say you're fasting. That has nothing to do with what you're paid to do. Uh, and he's not going to accept the fact that you're using fasting as an excuse for not doing the work you're supposed to do. Um, if you cannot fast and it's affecting your performance at work, I would recommend that you do your fasting during your vacation period of time. You don't, I mean, let not our good be evil spoken of. And we may have a good intention, a noble intention, but we also have responsibilities and we have to fulfill those responsibilities. So we must be very careful that we don't, in the desire to do good and do well, 
that we actually damage our capacity to witness to the person. Imagine that you are a boss and you're not a Christian and you're paying, you're paying me uh, to work eight hours a day. And uh, it becomes very clear to you that I'm slacking off and what I'm doing, you're, you're, I'm making all kinds of excuses. I'm not coming to work. I'm calling in sick. Put yourself in the boss's position. He's paying you to do a job. He's not paying you to fast. So I would suggest to you that if, it, if you can't do it so that it doesn't affect your work, uh, I would recommend that you wait until your vacation period is there and then uh, begin to explore it. Because if it's your first time, it could really uh, be harmful to your health. Mm. And again, um, you don't want to affect your capacity to fulfill your responsibility to the boss. And of course, um, I don't know of anybody who's employing people that like people to be sick regularly uh, because you still got to pay the person even though they claim to be sick. So uh, be very careful and make sure that your testimony is not ruined and the excuse that you're using that you're fasting before God. People that who are not Christians, bosses, are not concerned about whether you're Christian or not. They just want performance and productivity. And uh, the better we perform and the more productive we are, the greater opportunity for us to witness to our boss and to, uh, to speak to him for Christ. Yeah, and second question. Sure. Uh, I, I am a fisherman. Yes, sir. I just got a job on a boat. Uh-huh. And people, captain wants me to work on Sundays. And I, I, I take a stand and I'm not going to forsake my day of my family. And he tell me, oh, God seen my need and God seen that thing well. Uh-huh. God, God see my need and he see tell me that for sick not easy of my family. Yeah. What I would say to you is that, uh, is, you know, one thing I admire about the Seventh-day Adventists is that they won't play cricket on Sunday, they won't do activities on Sunday. Saturday. Uh, on Saturday, sorry. Uh, they wouldn't work on Saturday either. I've got to commend them for their commitment. If you're convinced that you should give Sunday to the Lord's Day, uh, I would not fault you on making that kind of a commitment. Um, I think uh, there are times when people have to work on Sunday. For example, a policeman, uh, a doctor, a nurse, um, people who function at the utilities facilities, like the water people, the people in electricity, somebody got to be there. So clearly somebody has to do the work on Sunday. Sometimes people at work at hotels um, have to work on some Sundays. Uh, I would recommend that if your conscience bother you, you find a job that doesn't require you working on Sunday. But if you were, if I was in a job and it wasn't a regular demand and the kind of thing I had to do, I had to miss a, a Sunday periodically, I, I I don't think that would bother my conscience too much, but if it was regular, 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 uh, it would. And therefore, I would have to find uh, another option. If you have family obligations, um, I think you need to be very careful and watchful about that. Um, if it is necessary at this point in time, um, ask the Lord to open a new door for you. But if you just were to leave the job and you have no other means of supporting your family, the Bible says if a man doesn't provide for his home, he's worse than, worse than an unbeliever. So I think those are factors that you need to wear in mind. But generally speaking, I would not recommend that Christians engage in, in uh, normal working activities on Sunday. I think Sunday belongs to the Lord. But there are some exceptions and some professions that require people uh, to work on certain Sundays. And I think in the context of the, 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 um, 
the time in which we live, I think that would be appropriate. But I don't like the idea of people trying to, you know, they can get Sunday off, but because it's an open, they're going to work on Sunday to make some extra money. Uh, I don't like that at all. But uh, there are times when work is necessary on Sundays, and I would uh, I would think that would be appropriate as long as it doesn't become something that is, is, is regular. Does that help? Yes, thank you very much. Okay. Thank you very much for your call. We appreciate it. Keep listening and keep encouraging others to listen to the program also. Pastor, you were talking about the prosperity gospel and the fact that that solely positive message of the Bible is not what the Bible is really all about. So if that's not what the Bible message is really about, give us a brief summation of what the Bible really is about. Well, the the message of the the Bible to the non-believer is very, very clear. Uh, You just have to look at John the Baptist when he came on the scene, bringing about the new dispensation. Uh, His message was what? Was repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. When John was slain and his head was put in a platter to uh, uh, to gratify the uh, base um, requirements of the the king, uh, and uh, Christ came on the scene, what was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So the message that Christ brought to the world is that the world without God needs to repent. And the simple gospel that is to be preached in all the world to the unsaved is repentance from sin and faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. That, in essence, is what should be preached. Uh, And, of course, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ involves three things, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's the Christian gospel, and that's the message that should be preached. Well, that's exactly the message that's not being preached today. Uh, That is why I say that it is part of the global deception to hide the truth from people and to almost dance people into hell by giving them some kind of a positive message and not emphasizing the need to repent. I've said this numerous times. Uh, There are many people in, in churches today who believe but who haven't repented. And that is the bogus uh, gospel that has been preached. So we have people in our churches who have really never truly understood what the gospel is. And they come into the church, they say they believe, we accept them, we baptize them, and we haven't emphasized the importance of the aspect of repentance. So they come into our churches, they become members, and they live lives like reckless lives because the aspect of repentance is absent. And uh, I think this is one of the big problems we have today. And the the false modern gospel that is being preached does not emphasize this aspect of repentance. And I think the reason it doesn't happen is because people want their ears tickled. They don't want to be confronted with the monster that they are and the need for change in their lives. Uh, They just want a camouflage and they want to be whitewashed and to feel good about themselves. And the gospel is designed to disturb you at the very core of your being uh, so that you throw your hands up in desperation and say, if this is true, what hope is there for me? And then the gospel comes in and points to Christ that he is your hope. He is the one you put your faith and trust in. I've heard someone say that it's impossible to get saved without tears. Is that 
biblical? I don't think that is necessarily true. Um, um, there are some people that are profoundly affected when the gospel is preached and they're totally exposed as to the, the, the real uh, character that they happen to be, the, the real sinful, depraved nature that uh, that they are. And I think that this they can be brought to tears. But people are different, different personalities. Uh, you know, there are people who can be profoundly affected without even saying a word, without even shedding a tear. Uh, but they're deeply disturbed. So I don't think that's a standard uh, by which we must judge whether another person is authentic or real. Um, I think what is more important than that, even the few tears, is the changed life of that individual. I think that is the real message and the real indication of a genuine, authentic change in a person's life. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The name of the program is That's Truth. And if you've just tuned in, yes, you are hearing the voice of Pastor David Murphy back on the program. He's been gone on vacation for a month, but it's good to have him back. Tonight on the program, we are discussing the topic of problems or troubles that face us in life. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.55. So, Pastor, problems. It should be a pretty simple topic to solve and to discuss, right? I should just pick up my Bible dictionary or my Bible concordance, look up the word problems, read the verses, apply it, and I'm done, right? (laughs) What will shock you if you were to take that approach is that you would search your concordance. You'll never find the word problem or problems. It's not there. And that that is a fascinating discovery for anybody because uh, we always talk and we always use that word problems. The Bible uh, never uses the term problems. It's not there. Does that mean that it's not applicable then? No, it doesn't mean it's not applicable. It, it just means that uh, the Bible uses different terms and different words to describe the, the nature of the problems of the believer. And there's a reason for this. Uh, the Bible... Um, um, see our problems from a moral and a spiritual aspect. Uh, it embodies the concept of problems in three words. Uh, the word temptation, the word testing, and the word trial. And you can see that if you look at your problems in terms of those words, it's either a temptation, it's either uh, a testing, or it's a trial. And uh, you can see that it has a moral element to it. This temptation has to do with something wrong. Uh, testing has to do with proving some quality within yourself. And trial has to do with under tremendous pressure uh, and to see what your response is going to be to that kind of pressure. So that's how the Bible view our problems in terms of those three biblical terms. And that's because the emphasis is on the moral and spiritual element of human nature and indicates that our problems... Um, uh, involve a cosmic struggle that is raging uh, and man is at the center of this cosmic struggle. Th- this battle, by the way, that uh, that um, explains the, the context of our problems, uh, there are four factors. There is the fact of the human choice that we are put in a position where we have to make a choice. There is the factor of satanic deception that the devil is always trying to deceive us by putting things in our lives. And there's a factor of divine activity that God filters the things that into our lives for a greater purpose, and He can even overrule Satan's attempt to deceive us. And the other thing 
is our, our worldly circumstances. Uh, our problems are a result of the intersection of, the, of these four things in our lives. It, it has to do with our uh, human choices that we're going to make, uh, satanic deception, divine activity, and the worldly situation or conditions which we find ourselves in. This is the matrix against which we must judge all our problems and understand our problems. So if I'm facing a trouble troublesome situation in my life is there a demon behind it is there not necessarily because uh, if you check the Bible you can find take the case of Job in the case of Job there was satanic activity but remember that God is also involved because God gave Job uh, Satan's permission to intervene in Paul's life uh, if you look at the case of Judas we're told that Judas uh, Satan entered into Judas and caused him to, de- to betray our Lord in the case of Ananias and Sapphira Again, Peter asked, how has Satan filled your heart? So there are times when there's satanic activity. But in the case of every believer, God is superintending the events and God is involved. But it comes down to the whole matter, something that the devil would use our circumstances. And it has to do with the kind of choices we make and how we react to the problems that we face within life. So I think it's helpful for us to, when we view our problems, to, to see those four ele- those four elements in it. There may be a satanic element. There's certainly divine activity. There may be the the, the pressure of our circumstances, but also the element of human choice involved in reacting to those those events. Do you think if we were to sit down and analyze every situation that we as humans would be able to dissect it and figure out exactly how those four things fit together? Or would it be a situation like Job where there's unseen things we're not aware of? Well, there are times when everything is a mystery. I mean, there are times when you can't see and understand what is happening to you. But I think it's a useful um, matrix uh, to bear in mind when you're faced with problems. Is this related to my circumstances? And if it's related to my circuit, it could be a husband, a wife, an individual. And then how is this being used either by satanic deception or divine activity? And uh, how am I going to respond to this? How am I, how am I reacting to it? What choices am I going to make? I think that that is the, a good matrix, a handy matrix to use in trying to understand anything that is happening to you as a believer. Uh, we know one thing that all things are ultimately working for good and God is is sovereign. And we know that God uh, builds hedges among believers and God opens doors uh, for opportunities where believers can be tested and tempted. But God always has an ultimate purpose or purposes behind allowing these type of things. I went to Google and just Googled something along the lines of how to work through life's problems. Mm-hmm. And I was amazed at how many times the phrase have faith in yourself popped up. Is that biblical at all? Uh, If you check scripture, you're always told to have faith in God, right? Have faith in God's power. You cannot find one reference in the Bible where we are ever told to have confidence in ourselves. Uh, As a matter of fact, uh, Paul says, I have no confidence in the flesh. And here is the great apostle Paul making it clear that his confidence is in God and not in the flesh. Uh, I think that is part of the psychology that has entered and infiltrated the church. I think it's one of those uh, key concepts that song so uh, emboldening, and it's very a very humanistic concept that I must have confidence in myself. Uh, the emphasis in Scripture 
is to always put your confidence in God. As a matter of fact, it says you don't even put your confidence in man. Don't even put your confidence in horses. Don't even put your confidence in the armies. Put your faith and trust in God. So I, I think it's a, um, it is a humanistic approach to life. And I think that uh, it sounds good. It sounds pleasing. You'll hear many Christians repeating that term. You yeah. must have self-confidence. Uh, but you don't find that reference at all in the Scripture. You always are told to put your confidence in God and not even to trust the flesh because the human flesh is so weak. We're talking tonight about troubles or problems that will arise in life. Do you have a question? It may be about this topic. It may be about something that someone asked you at work today and you just don't know how to answer it from a biblical worldview or you want to know why the Bible doesn't discuss something, give us a call. The phone number to be put live on the air is 1-268-462-7420. I'll give that to you again to be put live on the air, 268-462-7420. Or if you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, send it to 1-268-782-1420. Again, we're talking about problems or troubles in life. And yeah, I want to inject here and say something else about this matter of self confidence. Um, The other term that I find that is used very frequently by Christians is the word self concept, uh, self image. Uh, I think we again are buying into terminology that's been injected into the church by uh, human psychology. I think what we need to talk about is having a proper biblical concept of who God says that we are. Rather than having this, this by self-concept, we got to be very careful what we mean by that. I think we ought to encourage people to have a biblical concept of themselves, that they are made in the image of God, that uh, what God has created, God loves and God cares for and that uh, we are made for a purpose and life has meaning, if that's what we mean. But very often that's not what we mean when we talk about self-concept. We mean feeling good about ourselves. Uh, We don't mean feeling good about ourselves, that we're made in the image of God or that God loves or God cares for us. Uh, I think it is more self-centered and more hum- uh, uh, a more humanistic term. So we've got to be very careful and guarded of how we use these terms and how we employ them. Pastor, are there any major concepts that we can categorize or group the role of problems in the believer's life? Well, I think that... Um, if we're going to get a full grasp on this whole concept of how we deal with problems, what these problems are, and what's the goal of them, I think uh, the first thing we've got to try to understand the the general principles that the Bible gives in respect to our problems. And what I mean by that is uh, the Bible talks about the agents of um our problems, our agents of temptation. Uh, the Bible also talks about the, the different avenues or gateway by which uh, these problems come. And then the Bible gives us certain affirmations about uh, the, the, the problems we have. And I'll explain what I mean by that, but there's certain things that God tells us about the problems we face in life that God sets limits. Uh, for example, um, our problems are not unique. None of us will ever face a unique problem. And that, that's one of the biblical principles. There is no attempt, to, but such as is common to man. So I must never believe that what I'm currently facing, nobody has faced before, or believers have not endured this. And that is 
kind of a, a great relief to be aware that there's nothing I will ever face that somebody in life hasn't faced another believer has not faced and that's one of the great affirmations that reassure the believer that uh, you're not being uniquely put on the trial of uh, having a problem that is just uh, something that you're the only one going to face the other great affirmation of course is that God sets limits to the problems that we face uh, he'll not give you above that you're able so he knows your capacity. So whatever problem he puts in your life, there's a limit that he has already ordained because he knows that's your limit. So if you find yourself in a situation as a believer, uh, you can mark it down that God is not going to allow more than you can handle. Your he knows your capacity. That's why he's put that in your life. So you must not give it and say, well, you know what, this is too much for me. That's a mistake. The biblical affirmation that God said. And then the other one I think is important. God always promises that when you reach the point where you seem as though you can't endure, there's always an escape route. There's a way of escape. Right? So those are biblical affirmations that no matter whatever problem I... If I'm aware that I'm faced with a problem now, and I say to myself, well, you know what? Other people have faced this. Number two, uh, I also am aware that there are limits to it. I know that God is not going to give me more than I can take. And if perhaps it seems as though there's more than I can handle, and I'm about to break, God said, I'll give you... So I must look for that way of escape. That in itself uh, gives me ammunition. Uh, that when I'm faced with any problem, I bring those three affirmations to bear upon the problem, and that gives me hope no matter what my problem is. I think that's a, those are vital principles that help the believer. Are there limitations to that way of escape? If I'm in a marriage, uh -huh. this is not the case for me right now, so I'm not testifying on the radio, uh -huh. but if I'm in a, a marriage and it is nothing but conflict, and it's just arguing and fighting is God giving me a way of escape to flee that marriage in order to find someone else to marry? Well, we, we can't take a biblical principle in isolation uh, it's like me taking one passage, that's not the exclusive domain of the matrix of my problem that might relate to the problem but the other factors I have to bear in mind now okay, what is marriage? Marriage is a covenant it's a permanent covenant it's not something I can just jump in and jump out of. So when I find myself in a situation where I'm having a marriage that's just about to break down, uh, I don't use the excuse that God has called me to peace. Therefore, I just exit the marriage and jettison the relationship. Uh, uh, if I have made vows of marriage before God, I must do everything in my power to make that marriage work. So I, if I am having a, a relationship with constant conflict, uh, there are solutions to those problems, and it requires, of course, that I try to seek counsel. Uh, now, I know it takes two to make a relationship work, not, no question about that, but I must exhaust uh, every means to keep my marriage together. And uh, there are, I mean, I don't know what the problem may be, I don't know how it, how it started, but I do know this, and I've said this on the program, I'll keep saying again, any two Christians who are married uh, who are faced with, I don't care what the problems are, that marriage is redeemable if those people are prepared to follow biblical principles. And I wish those people, let us say one individual, it takes the persons to work together. But I am totally convinced that if we can love our enemies, which we are told to love, 
we can love our husbands, we can love our wives, even though they're not really our enemies, they may not be our friends. But if we can love our enemies, certainly we can love our friends, even though they may be estranged from us or we may be having struggles and difficulties. So I don't think that the fact that there's a way of escape, we must not use that particular verse now. Uh, You know, that's the funny thing about us, that our mind is so depraved and so we have such a, a prurient way of thinking that the moment we find a verse of Scripture, uh, we can misuse the Scripture, take it out of context, rip it out of context, and apply it to a situation that is not quite relevant. Um, so I, I would say we need to be very careful, even though it's a way of escape. Uh, we need to understand the context of the passage, and there are other principles that must be brought to bear upon marital problems and marital situations that uh, um, would not relate to this matter of just escaping because I'm having issues and problems. Another thing that you mentioned is that there's no problem that I'm facing that others haven't faced. Is it wise to seek out other believers who have faced that problem and seek their advice, or should I solely stick with Scripture? That's a, that's a biblical principle, by the way, that there's wisdom in counsel. And uh, if you read the book of Proverbs, uh, it advises you to seek counsel. Um this is one of the great things I, 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 as a pastor, when I'm counseling people, especially marital people who are having problems, I always remind them that the situation that they currently face is not just for themselves. It's for the benefit of other people. And I always say to them, as a pastor, uh, that I, I look for people as a pastor that when uh, p- people are having marital problems and they can resolve their problems and create uh, a beautiful, fresh, new relationship. Uh, pastors need people like that, that if I'm counseling a person who's having similar difficulties, I can say to that person, listen, I want to recommend that you go and sit down with this couple. They had similar problems like you, and they have resolved these issues amicably and look at their relationship. And, and generally speaking, when there has been a tremendous change of that nature, I normally tell those very people uh, that I would like to use them in the future for reference. But I think that's a beautiful thing. I can I can counsel, I can I can I can reason, I can talk, I can use illustrations. But there's nothing like a living example of a person who has gone through a change, a problem, whatever it is, and made something beautiful of that. To be able to sit down with that person, or you can recommend a person for that to, to go to, so that they can explain to them the process by which they were able to bring about this transformation. Uh, and I would advise people, uh, don't try to be a lone ranger. Uh, God never intended the church to be a lone ranger, it's a body. And uh, God has people in the church with different gifts, different talents, and I think you ought to utilize those gifts and those talents to help you and assist you in your pilgrim- pilgrimage as you move through this life. Are there any other ideas or concepts that you want to share as far as grouping the role of problems in a believer's well, life? The, 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 I, I was talking about understanding uh, general things about principles of how we understand our problems. Let's take the agents or the, the sources of where our problems come from. Uh, the Bible terminology, as I mentioned, is, is trials, temptations, and testings. Okay? And it tells us that the agents or the sources of those things that come our way uh, have uh, either coming from the world, the system, the way of thinking, the way it operates, uh, 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 a way of living that makes God superfluous, uh, 
you'll find that that will become a source of your problem sometimes to take materialism uh, that's the spirit of the world and that can become a problem in your life where you're in the pursuit of things uh, it also tells us that our problems come from the flesh this has to do with our inner evil desires and I think most of us are aware that a lot of the struggles that we have has to do with our own human nature and our own depraved nature and then the Bible tells us also that there is the devil the infernal cosmic tempter that is behind the scenes manipulating the world manipulating our desires to create uh, 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 vicious problems in our lives. Now, if you become aware that, that is the, those are the avenues through which your problems are going to come, then you can begin to fit them into different categories. And then the other thing is that the Bible also makes it very clear that there are um, three gateway towards problems in our lives. And those three gateways are, number one, the lust of the flesh, which has to do with our appetites, the pleasures that we have. One, the other one has to do with the lust of the eyes, which has to do with our affections and the things that attract us. And then the third one is called the pride of life, which has to do with our ambition and the desire for primacy or preeminence. Uh, again, if we begin to analyze our problems and begin to fit them into these uh, these um, avenues through which they, they begin to enter our lives, I think it becomes a helpful means of trying to decipher where this problem is coming from. Is it a lust of the flesh, a lust of the eyes? Does it have to do with pride? I think it provides a useful um, pattern for us to understand these matters. And then I think the other thing that I think is important when it comes to this whole matter of problems is that the, the Bible talks about three great weapons that we have in dealing with our problems. Uh, of course, there is the Word of God. Uh, um, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not yes, sin against yes. thee wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to your word and then in Christ the problems of Christ was faced with the three temptations the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life in Matthew chapter 4 what did he use? The word. So the word is there for us. We've got to understand that the problems that we face, the reference to resolving that, one of the great weapons we have in defeating our problems is reference to the word. And then, of course, there's the Spirit of God. Don't ever forget that. Uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 13 and 26, that if we through the Spirit mortify the deeds of the flesh, so the problems that we struggle with in the flesh, through the Holy Spirit, we, 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 we mortify, we kill those things, right? We, we, we strangle them, as it were. And then the other great uh, weapon that we have is the Son of God, Hebrews chapter 2. That is a throne of grace where the one who's been through every temptation that man would ever face, and we come before, boldly before the throne. We find what? Mercy and grace to help in time of need, see? So we are not in this struggle, or we're not dealing with our problems by ourselves. Uh, can you think of three greater weapons than the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the Son of God? But these are, are, are means that we have to resolve our problems and deal with our problems. Now, when you take these uh, general principles, the three agents uh, through which these temptations come, uh, the three avenues through which uh, the, the, these things happen, the three affirmations that God has given to us, and these three weapons... Uh, these are 12 basic principles that certainly should help the believer in dealing with his problems of life. If you're listening and you're saying, wait a minute, I didn't get a chance to write all of that down, you're going to get another chance. The, this episode will re-air on 
this Saturday afternoon at 3.30 on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. And if that doesn't work with your schedule, tomorrow I will podcast this, which means you can go on the Internet tomorrow evening or anytime thereafter, and you can listen to this episode. You can take notes. You can re-listen for the aspects of it that apply specifically to your troubles and your problems. All you need to know to find it online is to Google That's Truth Podcast, and it will show up on a number of different podcast providers. That's Truth Podcast, and it will be the episode entitled Life's Problems, How to Deal with Life's Problems. That'll go up tomorrow, Lord willing. Time Across the Eastern Caribbean is 818 on this Tuesday evening. You're listening to the program That's Truth. The voice that you hear teaching is that of Pastor Dr. David Murphy, the pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. We are discussing problems, troubles, and all that life throws at us. Uh, Pastor, what are some general Bible principles that we can use to apply to human problems? Okay. Um... If you're going to deal with the, the problems that you're faced with in, in life, I, I want to give you a, a kind of a, um, um, a model of, of when you're going to try to deal with your problems. Um, let me give you some steps that I would recommend uh, if you're going to deal with a problem. Uh, first of all, I would recommend that uh, set a time and a place for the discussion about the problem and uh, pray and ask God for guidance. Uh, unless you have an appropriate time and an appropriate place, generally speaking, you just end up rambling. You just end up uh, not dealing with the problem as exhaustively as you should. You kind of race through it, and very frequently uh, the search for answers are truncated, and you never get anywhere. So I would suggest to you set a time and a place. And by the way, this has to do as well for husband and wives who are having issues and problems with themselves. I think this would be a good model for you as well. You set a time and a place, and uh, of course you, you pray and ask God for guidance. The second thing I think is important is to try to define the problem and try to be as specific of what the problem is. Uh, I, I don't have to tell you that many times you begin to talk about a problem, then you begin to realize that the way you look at the problem is not the way the person sees the problem. What you think is the problem is not the real problem. Mm-hmm. So try to define as specifically as possible what is the problem. Uh, express that in words if you need to so that you're on the same wavelength you understand what the issue is. So we set a time. Uh, we have a place for discussion. We ask God for guidance and we ask Him for, for leading. And now we define the problem and we specify what the problem is so that you can say in words, you can verbalize what the problem is. And if there's uh, not clarity, the person can correct you. But you need to be sure that you're dealing with the same problem. This is the problem and everybody agrees that this is the problem. So all parties involved need to agree that 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 is is the the problem. Okay. Number three, uh, list ways in which each of you have contributed to the problem. Now, that's the difficult part, because many, many times, this is where the human ego gets into place, but many times the problem is not a one-way street. 
and there it takes to the tangle you've probably heard that expression and so try to list the ways in which you eat both of you or whoever has contributed to the problem well this is where I might have done this or said this and led to this particular problem so that it is not seen now as a one-sided matter uh, people are taking ownership of their part in creating the problem I think that helps uh, uh, because all of us are very protective of our image and our concept uh, because the human ego is so large we have a tendency to camouflage it and we're not ready to admit where we may be wrong because we want to save face and frequently it creates a cloud over the matter and we get more uh, we don't get as much light as we need so you set aside a time and a place for discussion you pray and you ask for guidance you try to define the problem in specific terms you list the ways each of you have contributed to the problem uh, number four list past attempts to resolve the problem that were not successful okay uh, what did we do uh, previously in attempt to deal with this problem we tried this, we tried the next, whatever it is. Uh, I think this helps you to understand that if these are the things that you've tried and the problem is still not resolved, we really haven't yet addressed the real problem. Uh, so we don't have to keep regurgitating the same old things that we did and repeat the same old things again. We'll try to get some clarity of how we tried to deal with it in the past and that it was not successful. Uh, number five, uh, do some brainstorming. Uh, Try to pool your ideas and uh, try to list what you think are solutions to the problem. Uh, well, how do you think we can solve this problem? Uh, try to get as many uh, suggestions as you can that the, from the two individuals, the three individuals, to pool an idea. Try to get a pool of what uh, possible solutions there are. And while this is being done, by the way, and being shared, don't criticize the suggestions that are being made. Just take them on face value that the person really feels that this is something that we can do to solve it. So now you've got a list of things that the individuals suggest how to approach the problem. And then number six, discuss and evaluate each possible solution that was offered from the perspective of biblical principles. See what biblical principles now guide out of these things that have come up. Are the biblical principles help or substantiate what has been offered? Uh, are they in line with some biblical principle, etc.? Because as a believer, it's not just human wisdom that is needed. Uh, there are Bible principles to help us to deal with every issue in life that we will face with. We just have to find what those principles are. And this is where we begin to evaluate what we have offered and see if they fall in line with what those biblical principles are. And so you discuss them, evaluate them uh, in terms of the uh, how they harmonize with biblical principles. Number seven, agree on one solution to try to resolve the problem. Uh, and make sure that this solution is in harmony with whatever biblical principles we have discovered. But come to some solution that we believe this is the way we're going to solve the problem. <clears throat> Number eight, agree then how each person will work towards making this solution work. Okay, It can't be a one-sided thing. If we agree this is what we're going to do to solve the problem, I must then specify what I'm going to do that week or that day uh, uh, to make this problem work. 
So I shoulder responsibility and the other person shoulder responsibility. Number nine, set up another meeting to discuss the progress of having done what we said we were going to do. Is it working? Is it helping to resolve the issues? Is it complicating the matter? Uh, do we still need to go deeper? But I think you have to somehow uh, discuss the progress that's being made. And finally, set another, uh, sorry, if there is a solution to the problem and it's working, reward each other for the progress, okay? Uh, and that can take different forms. A husband and wife have different ways of rewarding each other. Uh, friends have other ways of rewarding each other. But I think it's important to, uh, to be positive. And when this uh, solution is resolved, I think whether it be uh, praising the person for the effort, whether it be um, taking them out for dinner, whether it be sitting down and chatting, just having a uh, ice cream or something, I do feel that uh, it is appropriate uh, that you celebrate the success of whatever the, the resolution is uh, by some means of reward. It might be a letter uh, that you can write as well. It could just be a little thank you note, whatever it is. Um, uh, it could be a cordial restoration of, of good friendly relationships, but there ought to be some kind of reward that uh, cements the success of the effort. I think... That those ten steps, um, you, you just think about them as you you, you regurgitate them and, and and try to work them. Uh, I think that uh, you will find that that's a handy model of dealing with issues and problems. And I think not just uh, in the boardroom, not just at church, uh, but I think within relationships, within the family, husband and wife, I think that's a, a very good model to help resolve conflict and problems within a relationship. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.27. We have about 30 minutes left in the program, so if you have a question, go ahead and send it in via WhatsApp or text at 1-268-782-1454. Or call, and we put live on the air, 1-268-462-7420. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question that has come in from a listener in All Saints Antigua. Pastor, what's your counsel on listening to inspirational speakers who give people the idea that they are their own God and they are in charge of their own destiny? An example, your workplace invites an inspirational speaker to motivate and elevate you to a higher level of consciousness. I've been to some of those meetings as well. When I was um, the uh, manager of one of the Gettys in Barbados, um, I remember we had... Uh, speaker that came from the States, et cetera, et cetera, to try to motivate us. Uh, I sat through the meeting, and to be very honest with you, uh, I was there, but I was not there. Because I'm a believer. I, the, the greatest motivation in my life is to please God. Okay, And all this fancy idea uh, that these people give, it, it's just humanism, package, repackage. That's all it is. It's just a pep talk, uh, but there's no inner strength uh, that can be provided. You need divine strength. Christ said without me you can do nothing, absolutely nothing. You need the power of God in your life uh, more than human motivation. Uh, I am not a fan of these people because I understand where they're coming from. Uh, most of them are evolutionists. Most of them are, are atheists. Most of them are agnostics. And all of them, for sure, are substantially humanists. And uh, I am not a person who uh, feel that these things are, uh, you know, should be part of the Christian. However, if I'm in a workplace and it's mandatory as a manager that I attend the function, 
uh, I generally attended a function, but I don't have to accept everything that I've heard. And it gives you an opportunity as well to talk to your staff afterwards, because once they know you're Christian, they're probably going to ask you the question, well, you know, what do you really think about that? And it gives you an opportunity to, to share the faith with them, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that a lot of this, uh, oh, one other thing I would say, uh, I, there's a gentleman in our church that I've spoken to some time ago that used to work in one of the um, institutions in Antigua. I wouldn't say which one because he might be listening. You know, I'm talking about him. But he did tell me that one time he went to one of these um, motivational speaking sessions and they started to to practice uh, the whole idea of telepathy and the whole idea of uh, reading people's minds. Mm. And uh, he told me that uh, after going to, I think it was a week, some unusual phenomenal things happened that was frightening uh, and I think a lot of this thing is somewhat occultic as well. So I would recommend Christians not to be uh, in any way entangled themselves with these type of, of things, but understand that the world doesn't think the way that we think, and most bosses that we have are not Christians, and they're looking at it purely from the point of view of uh, motivating you will bring more income into the company or make you a better worker. Uh, but generally speaking, I don't, I'm not for these kind of motivational speakers coming in and talking and so on and so forth. They make you good, feel good for day. But after a week or so, you go back to the old because there's no inner power uh, to sustain it. So it's like a pep talk that dwanes and, and, and is lost. Uh, so I'm not for it, really. Is that a modern-day situation where we can apply the biblical appeal that Daniel made? He said, test me, let me do this God's way, and test me compared to my peers that are doing it the world's way? I, I, I am not too sure if there's a parallel between the two, but I, I feel that if a, my boss was going to ask me to do something that was highly offensive to me, like in Daniel's case, uh, partaking of the meat that was offered to idols. I'm thinking of like the case where the individual said that they were practicing things that were borderline occultic and strange things were happening, uh-huh. explaining to your boss, saying, listen. Yeah, I, I'm coming to that. Okay. I, I'm saying that if it was something of that nature that I felt... Uh, was offensive or contrary to biblical principles that I embrace, I personally would would go to my boss and say to him, you know, um, I I don't want to be offensive to you, and I know that you have the best interests of the company at heart, um, uh, but really, in truth and fact, I would prefer that I not be a part of this whole thing. And you might want to give the reasons. I think if a boss has confidence in you, and he knows you're a great worker and a good worker, and he knows that your heart is with the company, that you love the company, et cetera, et cetera, I would find it hard for him not to be willing to forego, allow you to forego a function like that when he thinks he knows you well enough to know that you're not just making a silly excuse, you're genuine, authentic. Now, if you are claiming to be a Christian and you're listening to the filthy jokes in the, in the, in the place and you're laughing at the same um, questionable things that are being said and uh, you spend two hours in the toilet when it should be one hour you go to break and you come back three hours late uh, people tell you tell him that they saw the company vehicle and he knew it wasn't the person's own because he was driving through all the potholes you know a person that can never go to a boss and say boss you know I'm a believer and uh, uh, but so I but I think if you are a genuine believer in a company and it is known that you are Christian and you practice your Christianity and your genuine authentic I believe that number one you'll be one of the best workers the company has uh, 
And number two, I think that your relationship with the boss and knowing how well your performance is, I don't think you'll have any problem allowing you to forego an event that others have to participate because he knows that it's not going to make any difference in your life. Uh, you are motivated by a higher power and a higher, higher uh control in your life. I think that is where, in Daniel's case, he did it. I think we can still do that today. I came across the writing of a counselor, and they said that when resolving interpersonal conflicts with other individuals, and this is their statement, make sure the other person feels respected and in control. That part, and in control, is that manipulation? I am not too sure. The I, I like the word feel respected because right. if we're dealing with an issue, uh, we must not belittle or try to demean uh, and we should still make the person feel respected. But I am not too sure what they mean, make the person feel that they're in control. Uh, I am not too sure what is meant by that. Um, but the respect aspect of it, no matter what we do, we ought in, in, in any way to try to uh, remain respectful as we're having engaging in, in problem solving, etc. Uh, if they mean by control, uh, the person feels as though they have the freedom to speak their mind freely and uh, they're not manipulated and controlled by somebody else, if that's what they mean, uh, I suppose that would be right and proper. But again, I want to remind you that um, you don't find a principle like that uh, in Scripture, you would find the aspect that we must respect each other. But uh, the idea of the person being in control, I'm not too sure what's the, the, uh, what that really means. As I read their writing a little bit more, they're talking about the fact that if they feel that they're in control, they're going to be more willing to work with you. It it struck me as a little manipulative, but I wanted to get your perspective. I, I, would, I would want them to feel that we're on par. Right, that uh, the kind of respect that we demonstrate to each other, that we're treating to uh, others, people as, as human beings, and we respect each other's opinion. But I wouldn't want I, I wouldn't want anybody to feel that they're controlling me, uh, that you want anybody to feel they're controlling you. So I would I would more uh, entertain the idea that there is a, a parity on equality uh, and respect that is shown to each other, so we can freely express our opinions without feeling threatened. Uh, that would be more uh, my inclination in terms of uh, my understanding of the issue. Another quote that I came across was, or a concept that I've sometimes wondered myself, is, Pastor, I'm a good person. Why do bad things happen to me? And I've heard other people say that all the time. Yeah. Well, could I say this, that uh, most of us may feel that we are good, but on closer reflection, uh, I think that if we begin to really understand that we are real monsters. I, I can't um, explain this uh, in, in a way that might be satisfactory to people, uh, but I find that the closer you get to God, uh, the more ugly you see yourself. Uh, and I think as you come to the light, the light shows up your imperfections. And so I, I, um, I, I think that people who use the word good uh, need to be careful how to use that particular term good because uh, that's a relative term, uh, good in what sense. But nonetheless, um, we are all sinners. And if we are all sinners, whether we be good sinners or bad sinners, uh, to what extent our sin is, uh, because we're sinners, we are going to encounter problems because problems are a result. The whole genesis of, of, of the problems that men have faced, the genesis has to do with the introduction of sin into the world. So I don't think we ex should expect to be exempted uh, from problems.
Pastor, what are some biblical words that are used to describe the believer's problems and what are their significance? Yeah, I, I mentioned at the beginning that if you check your concordance and you go to, as you mentioned, you go to and you check the word problem in the Bible, it's not there. Uh, I mentioned that, uh, on the other hand, uh, you'll find that the Bible speaks of our problems in terms of, of three words. It talks about our uh, temptation, it talks about testing, and it talks about trial. Uh, for just a moment or two, let's talk about that in relation to the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, there are three Hebrew words in the Old Testament that is used to talk about uh, problems as a test in the believer's life. Uh, the first Hebrew word is the word nasa, N-A-S-H-A. It's used 36 times in the Old Testament, and it refers to the attempt to prove a quality of something or someone. It wants to prove some particular quality. Uh, it's a test that has to do with bringing pressure on the person and difficult circumstances. But the reason for bringing the pressure in difficult circumstances is to test the quality in that person. And that's one of the ways that we need to understand what is happening to us as Christians. God is trying to test us to prove that that quality exists in us. He's not trying to disprove the quality is not there. He's just trying to show to the world that the believer has this quality. Like, for example, you remember the case of Job? Have you considered my servant Job, that he's, this is the way he is? And then the Lord told the devil, listen, you take, um, you, you do everything with him, but don't touch his flesh. Job was being tested to demonstrate those qualities that God already had uh, boasted uh, to, to uh, the cosmic world that these existed in Job. The other word that is used in the Old Testament for testing is the word syrup, and it means to smelt or to refine, like you refine gold or silver. And the emphasis there is that God brings things into your life to purify your life. Uh, just like you take gold that has um, some impurities in it and you put it through the fire, you melt those impurities so that the impurities surface and you rake those impurities off and what is left is pure gold. Uh, this is another th reason that God brings problems in your life, not only to, to prove that you have a certain quality, but also to refine that quality in your life. And then the third word that is used for uh, in the Hebrew word is the word behan, and it means to test. And... Um, it is an examination designed to prove the existence of a quality that God seeks in your life. That is used 29 times. So Nesa is used 36 times, Serap is used 7 times, and Behan is used uh, uh, 29 times. But the whole idea is the idea of testing to discover a particular quality and to refine that quality in the person. That's how it is used in the Old Testament. When we come to the New Testament, um, there are different words that are used. The word is not so much testing. Uh, the word now that is used often is the word temptation. And the two Greek words that are used to talk about temptation uh, is the word parazo and the word parasmos. And this has to do, uh, it could mean two things. It could mean temptation in the idea of soliciting you to do evil. Now, the thing about it is that God never tempts anybody with evil. So anytime you are solicited by some kind of a temptation to do evil, you know that that temptation is not of God. Uh, the other thing is the word, use the word uh, temptation, 
uh, has to do with the idea of putting pressure on you uh, to prove how you're going to react to whatever is happening to you in your life. That's the New Testament word, temptation. That word that is used, temptation, is also used in the sense of testing. Uh, and uh, the whole idea there is, again, proving uh, the quality in your life. Now, wh how do you know in the New Testament when the word, uh, that word that is translated parasmos or parazo is used either for temptation or, test or, or, or testing has to do with the context of the passage. So the context uh, helps you to discover whether or not it has to do with temptation, a solicitation to do evil, or testing, trying to prove your character. That is what is used. And then the last word that is used in the uh, New Testament is the word trials. And this word trial always has to do with something that involves uh, painful affliction or something that is a bodily, uh, of a bodily nature. Uh, that's another word that is used uh, in the scriptures. So basically, uh, the New Testament terms that are used to describe our problems <coughs> has to do with temptation, which has to do with solicitation to evil, has to do with testing, which has to do with proving uh, the character of the individual, or it has to do with the idea of trials that involve something of physical pain or some kind of affliction. Those are the biblical terms that are used uh, to talk about our, our, our problems. <coughs> You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 kilohertz AM, 92.3 megahertz FM, on Facebook Live, and also online at www.radiolighthouse.org. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.43. We have 15 minutes left in the program this evening, so if you have a question, go ahead and call us or WhatsApp or text your question. If you want to call and be put live on the air, the phone number is 1-268-462-7420. Or if you want to WhatsApp or text, the number is one 268 7821454 Pastor is there any purpose for why God allows problems in my life I think if you check the scriptures you'll discover that uh, God is not silent on this matter and God is very explicit as a matter of fact in uh, giving some explanations as to why uh, problems into the believer's life uh, the overall, over the overarching final purpose of everything that happens in our lives in respect to problems is that God is working through our problems to conform us to the image of His Son. That is very, very clear from Romans chapter 8, 28 and 29. God is working to our good. But God defines that good in terms of conformity to the image of of, of Christ. Uh, we define good in terms of our comfort, our ease, our happiness. That's not how God defines that good. As a matter of fact, if you read Romans chapter 8, <coughs> 28 and 29, you see that ultimately it's very, very clear that the goal, the good that he talks about, is to bring us into conformity to that image. So whatever happens in our lives, whatever problems come, we may be concerned about creature comforts, about convenience and financial security. That may be our good. But the ultimate good that everything that happens to us, including our problems, is to bring about ultimate conformity uh, uh, to Christ. Um, let me draw your attention to a few things here. 
And let me show you how this worked, not only in the life of the believer today, but let's take Israel for just an example. We know that uh, Israel and what happened to Israel is but an uh, allegory or an illustration of, of our own lives. They were in bondage. We were in bondage. They were emancipated through the shedding of the, the Lamb, the blood of the Lamb. We are also emancipated. But remember that after they were emancipated, they had to make a journey. It's called the wilderness journey. And the moving towards an ultimate end came in the promised land. Now, we have been emancipated, we have been delivered, and we are on a journey. This is our wilderness journey. Ask yourself the question, what was God's purpose in sending Israel through the wilderness and all the multiple complexities that they have and the problems? What was God trying to do? As a matter of fact, we don't even have to ask what was God trying to do. What did God say he was trying to do with, with everything that happened to them going through the wilderness? If you turn to Deuteronomy chapter uh, 8 for just a moment, Brother Nathan. And uh, God is recounting the experiences uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And he's speaking to Israel and, and telling Israel exactly why he did certain things. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, um, if you've got that, yeah, I do. Uh, look at, uh, read from verse number 2 to verse number 6, so just a moment. Okay. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee known the man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Verse 4. Thy raiment waxed not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. Therefore... Thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. Now, if you take that passage, uh, this is a recitation of all the experience, 40 years. What was I doing in those 40 years? And notice what he said. Number one, I want to humble you. Yeah. Right? So the purpose of all that they encountered, uh, the lack of water, the lack of meat. Uh, so Go ahead. You know, Pastor, we have a caller on the air from Nevis. Thank you for calling and go ahead with your question, please. Yes, good evening. Good evening, sir. Yes, um, I'm calling about a question. Sure. I was listening to a preacher not too long ago. Uh-huh. And he quote Revelation 20 and verse 9. Okay. He says, that's how long hell would last. Uh-huh. Okay, so what's your question, sir? Now, does 20 and verse 9 of Revelation depict hell? I'm, I'm, I'm not trying I'll to... I'll read it for you here. Revelation 20 verse 9 hmm. says, And they went up on the breadth of the earth, and compassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven, and devoured them. 
I uh, I don't see the reference here to that. I think that maybe uh, he was talking about maybe uh, verse 14 as opposed to verse 4. You no, not in verse 14. Huh? He, 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 he also made a reference to the wheat and the tears in Matthew chapter 14 where he said, where Jesus says the the harvest mm-hmm. is the end of the world. So he was saying hell would be on the earth. There's nobody in hell right now. Mm-hmm. Hell would be on the earth. And and uh, Revelation 20 and verse 9 uh-huh. shows the duration of hell. Yeah, but I don't Fire see. Fire came down from God and devoured them. Uh huh. But if you read, um, if you go on and read verse number ten, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Now that is that is hell. He made proper. no reference to that. He didn't make a reference to that. No. So yeah, he but wasn't reading context. Again, he's not reading the context. You need to read the context. Uh, look, anybody can teach anything by the Bible. I hope you know that. People can just play blind man cricket and just close their eyes, open a verse of Scripture, and without looking at the context of the passage, make that Scripture teach anything. It's important when you're going to interpret the Bible to read what comes before, what comes after, uh, in order to understand what the text says. And clearly this person has just snatched a text out of context and applied it to something that has no relevance. But certainly in chapter 20, verse 11, uh, verse 10 and 11 has a reference to, um, to hell. And it's interesting, by the way, that when it says that the devil that deceived them was cast into a lake of fire and brimstone where the beasts and the false prophets are, what you discover that uh, Revelation chapter 20 has to do with a thousand years after uh, the beasts and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire before the thousand years begin and after a thousand years they're still in in hell, basically. Right. So after a thousand years, they're still there. That is the understanding of what it what what is being said here. So I'm not too sure what the person was referring to in verse number nine, but clearly Revelation chapter twenty, verse ten and eleven, has to do with Gehenna, has to do with hell proper, and it's a place of eternal torment. And the words that is used very very clear is that they should be tormented day and night. Forever and the Greek language is unto the ages of the ages. In other words, there's no end to it. That is the biblical concept of hell. So I don't know what the person who taught uh, about verse number nine had reference to. But certainly, uh, earth is not hell. Now, earth might be uh, figured to be speaking of hell for people in the sense that they go through hardship. But the biblical hell is a place of fire, a place of torment, a place of smoke, a place of the darkness, a place where the worm dieth not. Uh, those are the words of Christ himself. And if we take Christ seriously, uh, we ought to be aware that we're in danger. Humans are in danger, real, real danger. That's why we're told, escape the wrath to come. And, and could I say, by the way, if we would preach this message to the world, we might get a different response. We have now buttered up God so much and we emphasize so much of God's love that we have forgotten the divine wrath of God so men no longer fear God. We have created the, the problem for ourselves by a lopsided presentation of the message and not preach repentance and wrath 
And then when we bring men that are under conviction and they cry out, men and brethren, what should we do? Then we point you to God's love as demonstrated in the death of Christ on the cross. That's how you preach the gospel. We have reversed the whole thing. Consequently, we are now reaping the consequences. Thank you very much for that call from Nevis. Pastor, as we got that call you were talking about Yeah, Israel. I was saying that clearly that what our Lord is explaining in Deuteronomy, the events, the 40 years in the wilderness, that this was not accidental. This was not just some coincidence. There were things that God was teaching Israel during that 40-year period, and he specifies what those things were. He said it was to humble them. Okay, uh, rip the pride out of them and make them dependent upon himself. He goes on to say to prove them, okay, to test them, and to test whether or not they would be obedient to him and whether or not they had that key element of faith. See, uh, uh, to prove uh, is to prove our obedience, and our obedience demonstrates that we have genuine, authentic faith. And then he says that he may know what was in their heart. In other words, it's like you got a, uh, you know, you take a, I've used this illustration before uh, of a counselor at Bob Jones that always kept a tea bag in his drawer with a, a, bot, a, a flask of hot water. And when people would come and, and tell him that, uh, you know, this person made me do this, he would just simply take the hot water, put it in a container and put the tea bag. What happens is that what is in the tea bag comes out. It was always in you. Okay. That's the point. But the pressure, the heat, is what brought out this within you. And that's the same thing here, to really prove to them what was in their heart, that they were of a nation. And then he talks about uh, as well, that they may learn the priority of what? Man should not live by bread alone. This is what I was teaching you. You can't live by just your physical things. I was trying to teach you throughout the whole process that priority must be given to the Word. Man must not live by, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then he said as well that it was a chastening process. Uh, just as a father would chasten a child, God was chastening. So when you look at the events of Israel and the wilderness journey, which is equivalent to our journey in life, we're headed towards a promised land, not an earthly promised land, but a heavenly promised land. And this is our wilderness journey. And through this wilderness journey, God is going to use problems, just like he did in the Old Testament. Times there wasn't any water, there wasn't any food, there wasn't any meat. Uh, at times the enemies are trying to attack and their faith began to dwindle. There was a reason why those things were allowed. And in Deuteronomy, he's now going back and retracing the history and saying, that, listen, what happened to you was not a mistake. I was using those 40 years to teach you certain things. Now, <laughs> I am saying to you, by the way, the ultimate, that was the process. But what was the goal? Look at verse number 6 that you read. read. Read it again. Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. So what is God saying? I want to teach you that you, you keep my word. What have I been telling you? Keep. Then you walk in my ways. And not only that, what has he said? And to fear him. To fear me. To reverence me. Yeah. That was the goal of everything that was happening in your life to lead to those three things. Now if you, it's interesting that it's not, man that is saying that is God that is now uh, under the second law of the book of Deuteronomy. God is reminding them that your life might look like a jigsaw. It didn't make sense to you. 
But I was at work bringing about three ends, and I was using a process to bring you to those three ends. And I want to say the same thing in respect uh, to the believer's life. Um, it's interesting, by the way, if you look at First um, Corinthians chapter ten, verse eleven. Could you check that out there for me, please? Yeah, First Corinthians chapter ten and verse number eleven. This is now the application of what happened in the Israel's journey. How does that apply to us today? so that we see the relevance of those events in Israel's life in respect to our own contemporary world. First Corinthians ten eleven says, Now all these things happened unto them for examples. Examples, uh-huh. Go ahead. And they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. So there were that examples to us to say to us, listen, God had a process and God had a purpose in the, these things happening in his people's life. The examples that, and also he, he points out <coughs> they're not only examples, but they're what? And they are written for your admonition. To admonish us, okay? A means of warning us and encouraging us so that we don't lose hope when problems begin to infiltrate our lives so that we we, we can't (coughs) seem to make sense of what is happening. Uh, We go back to the Old Testament and we understand that there's an ultimate purpose and a design for these things that are happening in our lives. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Pastor, we have... About one minute left in the program. Do you have any final thoughts or words of wisdom on the topic of the trials of life? Well, what I would like to do in the, in the next program, I, I, I wasn't too sure we would exhaust it tonight. What I would like to do is to go into the New Testament now and begin to see what are the reasons for problems in our lives. What is God doing? What is He trying to accomplish? Does God manifest to us as believers that He has a purpose that is being worked out? And what does that purpose entail? And uh, so I will, in the next program, we'll try to look at at least seven or eight things that God is doing through the problems in our lives. So your appetite has been wet tonight. Make sure that you tune in next week here for That's Truth. And make sure that you encourage others to tune in. Because we all have problems, we all have troubles that we face in our life. If you're not facing troubles right now, you probably will be by the end of the week, whether they be big or small. Thanks for joining us, and keep your radio dial tuned to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse from Antigua. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.